The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions at Greenville Seminary in Greenville, South Carolina. But today I am in Columbia, South Carolina with Dr. Derek Thomas, Senior Minister of First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, to talk about one of his... um, most recent publications, in fact, his most recent book as of the recording of this podcast. Dr. Thomas, thank you for welcoming me into your office. You are most welcome, and uh, welcome to Columbia. Dr. Thomas is not only senior minister here at uh, First Presbyterian Church, but he's also Chancellor's Professor of Systematic and Pastoral Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary and a teaching fellow with Ligonier Ministries. Dr. Thomas previously served as chairman of the theology department at RTS in Jackson, and today we are discussing his book, Heaven on Earth, What the Bible Teaches About Life to Come. And what I like to do in my interviews with authors, uh, Dr. Thomas, is kick off the conversation by asking, why write this book, especially a book on heaven when so many already exist? That's a really good question, and uh, Randy Alcon's uh, book on heaven is a very good book, uh, though he often, I think, engages in a little bit of speculation, uh, and, and perhaps I do to some extent in this book, I was um, encountering a number of questions by folk in the congregation about heaven, and typically the question, uh, are there dogs in heaven? And my answer to that is, of course there are dogs in heaven. Um, Why would there not be? And, And they are thinking sometimes in a confused manner, Um, confusing what we would technically call the intermediate state and the final state. So in the intermediate state, you know, what happens to you five seconds after you're dead? Uh, And as a Christian, as a believer, we believe that our souls are immediately in the presence of Christ. Uh, In a disembodied condition, although I have no idea how to understand that, uh, to be frank, and and there is an ongoing debate about whether that intermediate state is a totally disembodied, uh, non-physical state. Uh, Paul says in Second Corinthians four um, that if this earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building, um, uh, and and uses the present tense, not that we will have, but we we have a building and. Uh, there's some reformed uh, discussion as to w- exactly what that means. And Calvin, I think, is somewhat ambiguous about that disembodied uh, state in the intermediate state. But that's not what people are generally thinking about when they say heaven. They're not thinking of the intermediate state. They're thinking of the final state. And the final state really isn't called heaven. It's called the new heavens and new earth. And that looks like this. Um, Buildings, trees, rivers, seas. Dogs. And dogs. (laughs) And I I think think 
It is, uh, and, and I'd love to expand on it a little more uh, if time allows, but, but I think it is a restoration of creation as it was and would have been if Adam and Eve had not sinned. What would the world look like? Now, you said the impetus for the book came out of questions from congregants, people in your church that you're pastoring. And typically, uh, most churches aren't large enough to justify the writing of a small book to answer uh, recurring questions. Now, your church is more sizable than, uh, than many other Reformed and Presbyterian churches, so maybe you could get away with writing a pamphlet or a small book to answer these questions. But was there a step before the publishing of the book? Yes, there was. And uh, this book was generated out of a series of sermons that I preached. But I I knew going into that that this would be a book. Uh, most of the books I've written, and I've written 25, 6, 7, 8, somewhere around there, um, most of them have been uh, sermon series initially, uh, especially commentaries that, that I've written. And I would find it very difficult to go back and, and simply write from scratch um, a book, although I have done that uh, this spring, um, another book on scripture for the uh, Banner of Truth, uh, which was published a few weeks ago. And um, But this one was, was most definitely a series, and I forget how many, eight or nine, ten sermons uh, that I did about a year ago. And um, was able to sort of write up the chapters in advance. Uh, and then at the end of the series, you've got something that needs to be edited. Uh, and there's a, there's a difference of style between preaching and talking and the written word. Uh, and um, we have a wonderful... Um, we have wonderful folk in our congregation who have uh, second homes in rather nice places, uh, and they uh, loaned me their home for a few days so that I could go and just finish off this book. That is a wonderful providence. What a good gift. And in, in this book, um, you, you're working through seven discrete sermons that you're tying together into, into one small volume that's going to serve lay people. This isn't a highly technical read. It took me a few hours to read it. I wasn't racing through it, but I also wasn't slogging through technical jargon and lingo because the picture you present of heaven is one that is very concrete and one that, that, that comes alive in your mind as you're reading the book. But for our listeners, how should we think about heaven? You've already said it's, it's like this. There are things there. But what are some of the qualities of heaven that might differentiate it from what we experience day to day right now? Well, again, I think we need to be clear what we are talking about. And, and I'm not talking about the intermediate state. Now, when I die, I, I have an assurance uh, that I will go and be with Jesus. And, and that is a geographical area uh, Jesus' body is somewhere. His physical, resurrected, ascended body is in space and time. Mm -hmm. it, it exists somewhere. Uh, I often refer to Yuri Gagarin in the 1960s, uh, Sputnik, the Russian cosmonaut who went up into space. And, and being the vassal of the communist era that he was, uh, looked out the window and said to the world, you know, he looked for God and didn't see him. 
And, you know, the guy was an idiot. Um, he didn't go far enough. Uh, because somewhere in this universe, the body of Jesus is. And I don't know where that is. And is it in a, 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 a rent in space? Is it in... Is it in a parallel universe? I, I have no idea, but it could be. It, it could be, but it's somewhere, and it exists, and that's where we will be in that intermediate state. But we are now asking about the, the final state after Jesus comes, and we'll avoid all of the eschatological questions about things that happen before and after Jesus comes, and the 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 whole the whole panorama of events that accompany the second coming but uh, the creation or the or the transformation of this fallen universe into the new heavens and new earth there was a debate in the 16th century between the lutherans and the calvinists on the nature of the new heavens and new earth and the lutherans uh, described it in terms of and, and took and took that passage in the New Testament that this world will be burnt up uh, in Peter, and took that literally and and said that this this universe will be totally destroyed and God will bring into being a totally new universe. And the Calvinists said no, it it wasn't bringing in something new. It was a restoration uh, because because atoms and molecules and gravity and electromagnetism is not in itself sinful. And because of a predominant, I think, doctrine of common grace uh, within the universe, the Calvinists argued that the new heavens and new earth would, would be like this. It would look like this. Imagine the world if there'd been no sin. We could recognize it. You could recognize it. We will recognize each other. And therefore, our resurrected bodies uh, will have a resemblance to this body. And I think that if you if you accept the paradigm that Jesus's resurrection body is a glimpse of the kind of body that you will have in the new heavens and new earth. Now, you could argue that there is a, tr a further transformation from the resurrection to the ascension. And, and, but in the resurrection body, um, Jesus did a number of things. First of all, that resurrection body seemed to be subject to the laws of gravity. It didn't rise, and, and therefore the ascension has to be explained in some way. Uh, I remember teaching a course uh, at seminary on uh, eschatology, and we were talking about the ascension, and uh, Somebody put his hand up, or I think just shouted out and said, um, how could he breathe? And I said, excuse me? And he said, well, if, if he rises, if he went up into the clouds, uh, how could he breathe? And I thought to myself, you know, I've never thought about that in, in my entire life. But now that you asked the question, actually, it's a very good question because it it presupposes the fact that Jesus's resurrection body required oxygen, that he breathed, that his lungs went in and out, and even his ascended body continued to breathe. And therefore, uh, and therefore, in the intermediate state, wherever that is, it is in an environment that has oxygen. Assuming that the ascended body is a continuity with the resurrection body. 
Well, the new heavens and new earth, I, I, I fully expect um, to have oxygen. Uh, and we are corporeal and we are subject to the laws of gravity. We're not floating about in space. Um, and, and if we go back once again to the resurrection body of Jesus as a paradigm, and, and Paul seems to suggest in 1 Corinthians 15, in his extended discussion of the resurrection, that the body, the resurrection body of Jesus is indeed a paradigm of our resurrection bodies. Jesus ate fish at a breakfast in Galilee. And there are all kinds of repercussions and consequences to eating that require us to think through very in, in, in fairly crass and detailed ways that Jesus' resurrection body had a certain biological structure that could take in food. In Star Trek uh, Voyager, uh, is it Voyager? No, Star Trek, the original Star Trek with Data, uh, the android. I forgot now which, which edition of Star Trek that is, but... But every time there was a meal, he didn't eat. He just sat there at the table, and he didn't eat. He didn't require nutrients. Um, well, it appears as though Jesus' resurrection body requires nutrients. It requires food. Um, and I think that that, that cements, that, that, that solidifies, uh, pun intended in this case, that solidifies what the nature of the resurrection body of Jesus is and what it's like, and, and therefore what heaven, as people colloquially refer to heaven, not the intermediate state, but the end state, what the final state will be. And so corporeal bodies uh, that have the ability of recognition, um, and sensation and, and sensation. biological process right and and therefore um, we we need to think carefully about what we mean when we say that there'll be no pain in heaven you know c s Lewis has a very interesting um, essay in his book on the problem of pain on that, and he says you know that not all pain is bad. Some pain is good pain. If you stick your hand in the fire, y your body says, this hurts, and you pull it out again. S so will there be, in, you know, do we have s sensory ability in our resurrection body? Can, when you touch, can you feel? Can you feel something's hot or cold? Can you feel something's very hot and very cold? And and therefore, I, I, don't, I don't see... Why not? And I, I think that Christians generally still think of heaven, still using that term, or, or better, they think of the new heavens and new earth in platonic terms. Explain that. What do you mean by platonic terms? That the physical is the is the secondary and the primary and the and the good and the real uh, is the spiritual the non corporeal 
and for the Greeks generally, and, and so this wave of, of culture and philosophical thinking coming right up to the time of Jesus and the first century apostles, um, the prevailing cultural thought about the afterlife was that it was non-material, um, that it was in the form of some sort of vapor, or, or but but non-material, and 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 even the concept of vapor is is a material concept. It's pure the, ideal, pu- pure ideal, and the New Testament knocks that on the head. But you 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 see that um, I when I was converted. Uh, almost 50 years ago now, but uh, I had this love for classical music, I, I, bordering on obsession, and uh, too long a story to go into in detail, but I was mentored in my first year by someone who said to me, I needed to get rid of these records, and they belonged to my grandfather, and he had bequeathed them to me when he died, and he died when I was five, and he brought me into his room and told me he was going to leave them to me and so on. So there was that part of it too. But behind that piece of advice was a a typical, somewhat fundamentalist Christian view that there's something sinful about almost everything in this world and and about pleasure itself and about the arts and and, um, that that Christian piety consists in withdrawal. And you see that both in Protestant circles, but you see it in Catholic circles too, and the whole monastic movement uh, of withdrawal is is a part of that. And, And I think that was part of the debate in the 16th century between the Lutherans and the Calvinists, that the Lutherans still retained that notion that piety consists in withdrawal uh, rather than embracing and reforming and transforming. And um, so when, when we think about uh, the final state of believers, I, I really do think that when, when people ask, are there dogs in heaven, I, I always say, well, of course there are dogs in heaven not so sure about cats, but <laughs> there are definitely dogs in heaven. And not because I want to be sentimental. I actually want to think of that final state in very, very concrete terms. And concrete enough that that it has the inclusion, I think, of... Actually, I believe that all of God's creatures will be there. Uh, sometimes people allude to... Revelation 22, and John says, uh, and there'll be no more sea. As though, and there are some books on heaven that that suggest that there'll be rivers in the new world, in the new heavens and new earth, but no sea, no no salt, uh, saline um, oceans, and therefore no no salt water fish, and no whales and dolphins, and so on. Um, but but river fish, um, clean water fish, non-salt fish. You can tell I'm not a fisherman. Freshwater fish. Freshwater fish. I'm not a fisherman either. Right. I think that's- and 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 that's um, I think that's a misunderstanding of Revelation 22. And I think yeah. that the sea and there are 
several possibilities and not least one that the sea is actually a reference to um, a bronze lava uh, that contained water for ritual purification in the temple and, and so on. So it's a temple reference rather than a reference that there be no oceans in the new heavens and new earth. You know, I often think of it in this way. What was the mandate given to Adam and Eve in the garden? And, and that mandate was exploration and research and exercising dominion. And I think that's exactly the mandate that will be given to us in the new heavens and new earth. So, so when, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, let's avoid the intermediate state for a minute. When we get to the new heavens and new earth, it's not as though I, I will expect gigabytes of information to be downloaded into my brain and that all of a sudden I'll know stuff that I didn't know before. And, and that may be true that I, I, will, I will have and, and be made aware of immediately knowledge that I, that I don't have here, but, but I fully expect there to be a process of acquisition of knowledge and information in the same way that it takes place here. You ask questions, you investigate, you experiment, you learn. Uh, and I fully expect the new heavens and new earth to be temporal. I, I, I don't think it's outside of time. I think it's within time. God is outside of time. That's another debate for another season. Um, but God is timeless, but, but we exist in space and time. And, and, and I think that our current understanding of the universe is that time and space are related together and, and, and uh, um, therefore um, I, I fully expect the new heavens and new earth to be within a spatial and temporal existence. Fundamentally, the new heavens and new earth are still creations, there's still creation, which means it's distinct from the creator. One of the main, most basic distinctions between creator and created, uh, as far as we observe and as far as it's been revealed to us in Scripture, is the distinction that creation occupies space, finite space, and experiences uh, temporality or time, whereas the, the creator does not, um, is not limited to finite space. He's infinite and everywhere. And also, he's not limited to temporality and time. He steps into time in the person of Jesus Christ. He operates in time. He interacts with his creation in time, but he exists outside of it. And so why would the new creation be different on that score? Um, why would we not be experiencing time as, as a created beings? But I want to back up to the introduction of the creation mandate into our conversation here. Jesus Christ points out, and you highlight this in the book at one point, that there is no marriage in heaven. But marriage, like labor and exploration and exercise of dominion, is something that's given and instituted at creation. So why would we assume, then, that we will have creative pursuits uh, in heaven, labor, exercise of dominion, when we're told very plainly that another basic pillar of, of human experience from Adam and Eve, this institution of marriage, will be going away in, in the new heavens and new earth. Yes, I don't know that I have an answer to the question 
why are some things continuous and some things discontinuous. And marriage is discontinuous because of um, a, a dominical word, uh, because Jesus said so. Uh, so there's no procreation. There, there are no babies born in the new heavens and new earth. The number is is fixed. And a million questions arise to which I have no answers, and, and you reach a point where, you know, I would hear the voice of Calvin saying, um, you know, we must not engage in speculation. But the mandate to acquire knowledge seems to me to be conducive to an environment in which we will not know fully and, and nor have experienced it fully. And... There are parts of this universe that we have never seen, and at least in this existence as we currently know it, you know, we might be able to get to Mars, and, and we might still be alive if and when that takes place, but we are never going to see the Milky Way or what's on the other side in the fourth quadrant of the universe. And is that forever to be the case or is part of living in the new heavens and new earth a continual exploration of the amazing universe that God has prepared for us and and I don't know I can ask the question I I think I think that we will acquire knowledge I I think that there will still be the experience of oh, I didn't know that, and now I do know that. And now I've, I wasn't there before, but I'm, now I'm there before, so I acquire knowledge. And so that, that's part of what investigation is. And, and therefore, the, the, the pursuit of creative um, gifts of art, of music, of architecture, or whatever is still a part. I, I, I do not envisage the new heavens and new earth to be completely static. I, I don't envisage the new heavens to be one long sort of Sunday morning worship service that just never ends. Uh, all of life will be worship. Uh, the temple will be everywhere. The whole creation will be temple. Uh, and I I think that's a theme, and it's one that's current just now. And one thinks of Greg Beale and New Testament theology and the importance of a particular understanding of the book of Revelation that seems to have been favored. And all of that, I think, is part of our understanding, I think, of the new heavens and new earth. There'll be, there'll be things to do and things to create and things to enjoy but there's also discontinuity, and marriage is one of them, and, and presumably sex is another. And that creates issues of further discussion, which I'll let you answer. <laughs> um, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't understand that. I mean, I, I, I don't have answers to that. All I know is that, that it will be not just good, but very good. 
it will be exactly as God intends it to be and as he created us to enjoy and find fulfillment in. Um, and, and therefore, it is, it's, it's the concreteness of the new heavens and new earth that, that really was my, my burden to mm -hmm. get across because I still find a lot of Christians thinking in... Gnostic terms. Gnostic neoplatonic terms now there's uh, there's the opposite extreme as well the materialist extreme where christian materialism if we wanted to call it that it would really be pseudo christian materialism you have pseudo christian gnosticism that we're pushing against but also on the other side you have the view that when our bodies die our souls go to sleep and then they're wakened up with our bodies at the last day and I think that's that's a, a crude way of putting a, a reigning assumption that uh, that a lot of Christians have, and even some Anabaptist thinkers have have sought to systematize and articulate the, the doctrine of soul sleep. You touch on that in your book. Can you explain where that misses the mark and what that is saying about uh, humanity that is inaccurate and and outside of uh, outside of the counsel of Scripture? I think that Jesus' words to the dying thief are crucial. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I, I know that there are translations that's, that suggest that what Jesus is saying, I, I'm saying to you today, comma, pause, you will be with me in paradise, uh, allowing for a soul sleep. Uh, but I think that the Greek text is perfectly clear on this issue um, that Jesus uh, intended the dying thief to understand that there would be continuity of consciousness from the moment of his death to the moment that he that he that he is in Jesus's presence in paradise uh, interesting that you know it was one of the first books that Calvin wrote in the 16th century was Psychopanikia and uh, before uh, the Institutes so in that period in the 50, early 1530s, uh, before he came to Geneva, he'd published this little book uh, addressing the issue of soul uh, sleep. And uh, um, Seventh-day Adventists and, and others, and for different reasons, uh, advocate a very similar view. Um, an inability to conceive of existence apart from the physical, apart from the body and it's it is important to say you know it's not that we have a soul I, I, I don't like that language I think that too is a, a platonic way of describing soul I think we are a soul um, do animals have souls and and Christians are very very fixed and certain uh, in that they do not have souls but Actually, I'm not sure what they're talking about because the Hebrew text of Genesis 1 uses the same word, uh, nephesh, for uh, Adam and Eve as, as it does for animals, um, meaning that they are alive. The spirit uh, of life, yeah. Right. So, so what soul means is life. It, it, means, it means consciousness. You know, what are you five seconds after you, your body is dead when there are no brain waves. However, you define death, there are no brain waves. Um, you are still alive. You still exist. You are still self-aware. You still have consciousness. 
and, and therefore consciousness is something and uh, interesting we have a uh, one of the world's leading experts on the brain here in our congregation and has written a thousand page book that that every doctor in South Carolina has read I, I understand uh, on the brain uh, and I was asking him uh, are physical scientists who study the brain uh, are, are they ready yet to uh, give an explanation for consciousness and the answer is absolutely not uh, that that the chemistry doesn't allow for a valid explanation of consciousness so so consciousness and self-awareness certainly involves the brain in some way but there is more to self-awareness and consciousness than the brain and and we glimpse it in in that sometimes we do have that sort of out of body experience uh, and I, I i don't want to go too far on that but but we 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 can certainly think of ourselves and be aware of ourselves apart from the body and um that, that i think that's important when we're talking about the the continuity of life or the soul or the spirit or or um, self-awareness and consciousness and and more often than not that's how I think about souls that when you die your soul meaning your self-awareness your your self-consciousness of who you are um, continues does something change to the souls of believers at their death when when they are separated from their bodies and and brought into the presence of Christ as as Jesus promised the thief on the cross or declared to the thief on the cross yes in the sense of the fullness of sanctification they are made perfectly holy as the catechism uh, says so sin affects body and soul sin affects our understanding of who we are and and the way we understand who we are uh, so, so therefore at death, our souls are made perfectly holy. Um, but, but again, I, I have no, I, I have no means of fully understanding what that is like apart from the body, uh, because I've never really experienced that. Um, I, I just believe that that is possible, uh, from what Jesus said to the dying thief in. In particular, and, and I think those words are, are crucially important. And we will have that experience, though we don't have it now. We will have it, and in that sense, can the Christian then? This is more of a pastoral question. Can the Christian? Should we look forward to that day of death, or should we tremble and and seek to cling on to life as, as much as we can? How how do we pastorally wrestle with that particular issue, either facing imminent death or even just looking at it afar off from from the vantage point of youth and vitality yes i mean that's a that's a good question and i think that the tension that paul expresses in philippians one uh, that he has a desire to depart and to be with christ but he also has a desire uh, to live on and fulfill the mission that god has given to him and and you you see the apostle wrestling with that uh, and therefore christians shouldn't have a sort of death wish that they're just longing to die. Uh, but I do think that we ought to have an anticipation of and a longing for what it means. And Puritans used to speak about being being 
um, ready to die, living as though uh, packed and ready to go. Uh, that famous uh, answer that, uh, that John Wesley gave uh, when he was asked what would he do tomorrow if he knew it was to be his last day, and he opened his diary and looked and he said, I would do exactly as I planned to do. Uh, and and having the sanctification to to live with that, having an assurance, uh, gospel assurance, that when we die we will be in heaven, not because we are good enough or we've earned enough merits, but because of the grace of God in the gospel, that that all of our sins have been dealt with by Christ. Um, but God has given to each one of us a calling, a, a task, a mission to fulfill. And it's natural. You know, I want to see my grandchildren grow up and I want to see them graduate from high school. I want to see them going off to college. I want to see them having, marrying and having children of their own. I mean, those are, those are perfectly natural, good Christian aspirations to have. But, but Deo Valente, if God willing... Um, only if the Lord wills it. And, and so I think we live in that tension uh, between having a desire to depart but also having a desire to remain. And, uh, you know, the older you get, the more you think along those lines. You, you plan for the future. You, you, you make reasonable plans. You, you have a retirement Account you take out insurance um, because there is seemingly an expectation that you will live, but you don't. You don't know. Um, so so I, I think I think Christians live in that tension. How can we prepare ourselves for those twilight years, and in fact, that very moment when we depart to go home? to be with the Lord. What pastoral advice do you give in this book, or you would give even outside of, of what you covered in the book, to believers who sincerely want to pursue godliness in preparation for departure? Yes, and therefore we should live with short accounts. Um, I think that there is a reasonable sense of piety that suggests in the rhythm of daily life, you know, that you you pray uh, every day, you close out each day, uh, and, and um, uh, you know, as you close your eyes, uh, if it is God's will that they open again in the morning, and there's a child's prayer that we sometimes teach our children uh, that suggests that. And um, be one of the things I think that, that we should be careful about is you know not not to live uh, our lives as though we have no um, no calling no no sense of conviction as to what it is we are supposed to do in this world um, you know I think the closer you are to three score years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be four score years, uh, and so on, the closer you get to that, the, the, 
the more you realize how how short life is and how much we waste our time uh, on things that are trivial and things and especially things that are sinful uh, and therefore pursuing godliness pursuing holiness without which no man shall see the lord uh, pursuing that lifestyle of um, mortification and cross-bearing and um, meditation on the life to come those three things that calvin mentions in the third book of the institutes as we think further about pastoral issues and this maybe brings us full circle back to the beginning of our conversation um, in this little book you cover so much ground on the subject in just really just a hundred and twelve pages or so but what would you want to leave our listeners with in terms of the number one uh, correction of a popular misconception about heaven, the afterlife? It could be about the intermediate state, the final state, whatever. What is the number one uh, area of pastoral counsel you would want to give to uh, the Christian on the street about his or her perception about heaven? Can I have two? You can have two. Uh, the, the first is that you can be sure about going to heaven. But you can also be sure about going to hell if you don't believe in the gospel, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. So everyone isn't going to heaven. And everyone who thinks they're going to heaven isn't going to heaven either. So, so the key here to being certain about heaven when I die is the gospel. So, so there's a gospel motive here. But the, the number one issue that, that I confront all the time is the suspicion that heaven is something ethereal, floating on clouds, plucking harps, having angel wings or, or, or something of that nature. That heaven I, is a terrible bore. <laughs> right, to be perfectly honest. And, and um, I, I really want to dispel that. And, and I, I want them to view it, the final state, as something very concrete and very similar in certain ways to the way we experience the cosmos today. I love what you write toward the end of the book here. You say, Our resurrection bodies will similarly bear a weightiness and significance suited for the experience of seeing Christ face to face, as it says in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. I can hardly wait. It is going to be an adventure. And then just a couple of pages later in your postscript, you say, Heaven is where we dream and grow and play and work, along with all the redeemed saints. In its final form, heaven is a new earth, mountains, oceans, rivers, lakes, forests, sandy beaches, birds, fish, animals of every kind, and dogs. Sweet dogs to play and run with, all God's creation now restored for us to explore and investigate and try to understand. And that's just the, the written version of what you've said earlier in this short conversation we've had. I hope to our listeners, I hope this whets your appetite to pick up this book, to, to read more of, of heaven, of our, of our eternal, not just resting place, but our eternal sandbox as it were, where we will run and play and explore and continue to experience God's goodness in creation, even as we behold him face to face. The book is available from Christian Focus. 
and I refer you to ChristianFocus.com. It's also available on Amazon and other uh, other good fine booksellers like Reformation Heritage Books and Westminster uh, Bookstore. Uh, it's twelve ninety nine is the uh, is the you know the the retail price. But I you know encourage you to go check it out online to see what these other vendors are selling it for. And Dr. Thomas, I also like to ask uh, authors to refer other books. You mentioned Randy Alcorn, but what other books did you come across that were helpful to you in terms of thinking through these issues, uh, putting pen to paper, and, and, and writing a book of your own? What, what other resources would you direct us to? Hukma on, um, uh, on the Bible and the life hereafter, uh, which is a fairly massive book on eschatology, dealing with all kinds of things. But his, his chapters on heaven and the new heavens and new earth were, were very, very um, helpful indeed. Um, but there are also some chapters uh, in uh, J.C. Ryle uh, that were very helpful to me and in holiness and practical religion uh, that I thought were, were very helpful. There you have it. I, I thank you for your time, Dr. Thomas. This has been an enlightening conversation and one that has made me uh, think again about how exciting the prospect of, of life with God is, not just here, though that is certainly uh, such a, a great an exciting prospect as we grow in grace and godliness and acquaintance with our Lord. But even in the hereafter, when we go and after the, the trumpet sounds and the heavens and the earth are restored and Christ reigns consummately and uh, beholding him face to face and yet still experiencing all the goodness that he gives his creation. Thank you for your time and for this interview. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.